0: You can like my body, can't trap my mind, not forever be free. Okay? Free to Black Panthers. F-E-B-P. Stand for free the Black Panthers. F-Up the Black Police. Fed's infiltrated our movements for Black Leadership Rose. But we still here, been the bill here. Up sale Pro. Show. They got me started, lion-hearted. I'm the new Mufasa. This gonna be televised Black power Be scared guys That be standing there Like they paralyzed huh? We safe for the system Cause we above the system We keep ARs and pistols Shotguns, that's worth to crystal But that's for self-defense Make sure we have no issues Be sure to leave it at the door If you have it with you This for them freedom fighters That lost they freedom Until they freedom We screaming Carpe demon. This for the general. King Khalid Muhammad, we gon' make your day a holiday, I fuck me, i mad. Free the Black Panthers, fvbp stand for Free the Black Panthers, and fuck the Black Police, that 13th Amendment, tryna make a slave of me, you can like my body, can't trap my mind, not forever be free, okay. Free the Black Panthers, fvbp stand for Free the Black Panthers, and fuck the Black Police. We infiltrated our movements from black leadership roles, but we still here, finna build here, Upcoin Tail Pro. RBG, 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 RBG RBG. My sisters, my brothers, the counselor, the elders, that's really all I need. We suited, we booted, don't do it, you stupid, we head to the armory. Black women and goddess, regardless, my heart just don't fuck with misogyny fools that don't tolerate it. Melanated, so you gotta hate it. But rock up up another conversation. Trump finna get inaugurated. Damn Unify or die. Nbpp.org.
1: We have a, 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 a people who are only 13% of the population, yet we make up 80% of the prison. We have 50% unemployment rate in the black community,
0: and it's actually even more than that because they're not counting our people that are in the prison. The 13th Amendment said you could not be made a slave or indigenous servant unless you commit a crime. The men
1: that forced our people to be subjects of this government. We never had any say in that. We need our own nation.
2: I'd like to begin with a personal story. Uh, my grandmother was the daughter of a woman who was uh, the child of persons who were enslaved on Rose Hill Plantation in North Carolina. And uh, as a consequence, my sister and I are the fourth generation removed from slavery. Uh, My grandmother also lived in a town in North Carolina called Wilson, which was a uh, tobacco stapling center and uh, she lived in a town that was characterized by the classic pattern that's that's featured in uh, many, many southern towns in the United States. Uh, There was a railroad track that ran between the black side of town and the white side of town uh, as an act of separation that was uh, emblematic of the Jim Crow period in the United States. Uh, There was a point at which uh, I wanted to go and see a movie Happened to be a Disney movie, after all, uh, an old Disney movie called Darby O'Gill and the Little People. But it was being shown at the White Theater in Wilson, North Carolina. And my parents refused to let me go because they said we would be compelled to sit in the balcony. And they viewed this as an indignity that they were not going to stomach And so I wasn't able to go. I was very hurt because I really wanted to see this movie. Uh, But I also came to realize as I grew a bit older that this was an indignity that was relatively minor in a social context in which lynchings and white massacres had become quite routine. Um, So I would like to emphasize that when we think about the case for reparations, we are thinking about a case that is not exclusively centered on the harms and injustices and atrocities associated with slavery itself, but we have to view slavery as a crucible that created a subsequent array of atrocities that are associated with white supremacy in the United States. And those atrocities include those that were the product of slavery itself, but also of nearly 100 years of legal segregation in the United States, accompanied by white mob violence at frequent, frequent intervals. Um, and, And so we usually refer to that as the Jim Crow period. And I want to emphasize when people say there are no living victims of slavery, there certainly are a number of us who are living victims of the Jim Crow period. Of course, if the nation waits long enough to engage in an act of redemption and compensation, we won't be alive any longer. But a national act of procrastination is not a justification for avoiding paying the debt. And then of course, in the aftermath of the period of legal segregation, the post-Civil Rights Act era, we have a set of circumstances in which there were ongoing atrocities, inclusive of mass incarceration, police executions of unarmed blacks, the persistence of discrimination in employment, housing, and credit markets, as well as something that I'm going to emphasize in the remainder of my comments, the immense racial wealth gap in the United States. Now, in our book, uh, From Here to Equality, which is authored with Kirsten Mullen, uh, who happens to be my spouse, In our book, we define reparations as a program of acknowledgement, redress, and closure for a grievous injustice. Acknowledgement constitutes a circumstance in which the culpable party acknowledges or recognizes that it has committed a vicious harm, and it also acknowledges or recognizes that it has benefited from the execution of this vicious harm. Redress is the act of restitution on the part of the culpable party. And here we're going to talk in a moment about, uh, about the role of the wealth differential in the United States between blacks and whites as a critical component of, of a redress process for black American descendants of US slavery. The final component is closure which is a a point at which the culpable party and the victimized community come to an agreement that the debt has been paid, and no further claim will be made unless there's a renewal of the atrocities that have taken place in the past, or a new array of atrocities is forthcoming. So I want to focus next on the wealth differential. And the wealth differential is best captured by the magnitude of these types of differences in black and white wealth. Uh, Black Americans constitute approximately 13% of the nation's population, but only possess about 2.6% of the nation's wealth. Collectively across the globe, there's approximately $300 trillion in wealth. $100 trillion, or about a third of that, is in the possession of uh, American citizens. And 90% of that is in the possession of white Americans. So we have a situation in which uh, black Americans constitute a much, much higher percentage of the U.S. population than they do uh, in terms of their share in in the nation's wealth. Uh, This translates into a circumstance in which the average black household has approximately $800,000 less in net worth than the average white household. Uh, Another way to think about this is as the fact that there are three white billionaires, uh, Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates, and Warren buffett who are worth more than the collective 80% of black Americans who are at the lower end of the wealth distribution. But it's not just a matter of the billionaire's wealth that explains this gaping differential. For example, white Americans of white Americans have a net worth in excess of $1 million, but it's only 4% of black Americans. Now, wealth is important in terms of being distinguished from income. Wealth is a stock concept, it's the difference between the value of what we own and what we owe, the net property of our value, uh, excuse me, the net value of our property. Uh, Income in contrast is, is a flow concept that's most closely associated with our earnings. And wealth is more significant than income in terms of providing us with economic security and opportunities to fully participate in the society. Uh, Wealthier households have the capacity to survive income losses that might be associated with unemployment or medical emergencies. Wealthier families can provide their children with high-quality education and debt-free education. Wealthier families can have access to high-amenity neighborhoods. They can also purchase legal counsel, valuable legal counsel, when confronted with the criminal justice system. Wealthier families can leave bequests to subsequent generations to ensure their economic security and well-being. So wealth is extremely significant and the differentials that exist between blacks and whites are connected to sharp differences in economic opportunity and well-being. Indeed, it's very important to note that the major factor that that dictates what an individual or a family's level of wealth is, is the transfer of resources across generations, which means in turn that wealth captures the cumulative intergenerational effects of white supremacy in the United States when we think about the black-white differentials. And so in From Here to Equality, we argue that the goal of a reparations program A goal that is associated with the redress component of reparations is to eliminate the racial wealth gap. And this would be done primarily through direct payments to eligible recipients, Black American descendants of U.S. slavery. In the book, we identify two standards for eligibility. The first criteria is what we refer to as the lineage criteria an eligible individual would have to demonstrate that they have at least one ancestor who was enslaved in the United States. And the second criterion is what we refer to as an identity criterion. And this is a criterion that says that an individual would have to show that for at least 12 years before the onset of a reparations program, the enactment of a reparations program or the enactment of a study commission for a reparations program, whichever comes first, for at least 12 years before that, an individual would have to have shown that they self-identified as black, negro, or African-American. The culpable party for making the payment is the United States government. The magnitude of the payment must be sufficient to eliminate racial wealth differentials within the course of a decade. I'd like to add, finally, that the coronavirus epidemic only further dramatizes the case for reparations. We've observed excess mortality on the part of Black Americans. We've observed a collapse in Black businesses, in Black employment opportunities, and we've observed a high degree of crisis in terms of opportunities for education as our uh, instructional environment has shifted from the classroom into the home via the internet. So as a consequence, uh, we argue that it's important to continue to commit to the case for reparations in the midst of the pandemic. It's always an urgent time to adopt reparations. It has been an urgent time for 155 years since the end of American slavery where no restitution has been provided. It's time for the nation to pay the debt. It's time for racial justice. And borrowing from Chloe Valdari, I'd like to say that we collectively must become enchanted with the goal of racial equality.
3: Thank you so much, Sandy, for um, for all of that and for uh, explaining your book a little bit and also talking to this moment. And I, I think in in thinking about um, this moment, you know, obviously the, the subject of reparations is not a new one. It's something that we have been having conversations about for a, a very long time. And you know, I think that when you think about uh, what we're experiencing right now, both related to the pandemic and uh, violence against the Black community, the conversation often does sort of look at reparations as. A way forward and I'd love to hear you just sort of explain why you feel this moment uh, might be different from others in making progress towards towards this
2: I think that there has been a shift in the terrain that became evident in 2019 even prior to the coronavirus pandemic and prior to uh, the widespread recognition of the phenomenon of anti-black police violence, which the black community has been well aware of for for a long, long time. Uh, even prior to that, I think, in 2019, there was a, a signal shift in the uh in, in the environment with respect to attention that's being given to reparations. Uh, I'm not sure how to explain why that was the case, but for the first time in my lifetime, uh we had serious and credible political figures who were contesting for the presidency of the United States actually uttering the term reparations and potentially talking about whether or not uh, there would be the grounds for introducing some sort of study commission for reparations uh, through congressional legislation. Uh, that had never happened before in my lifetime. And it, it seemed to me in 2019 that the nation was having the most animated conversation about reparations uh, at, at, on the political stage that had ever taken place since the reconstruction era in the United States. So uh, I think that the more recent chain of events has produced uh, greater momentum for serious consideration of this idea. I think people are no longer dismissing it out of hand. I think they're trying to think about what the consequences would be for our nation of adopting a reparations program for Black American descendants of slavery in terms of our moral future as well as our social future collectively.
3: And so the, the idea of reparations, of course, stems from this, this concept of 40 acres and a mule, right, that at, during at the abolition of slavery, after the abolition of slavery, rather, uh, free slaves would receive 40 acres and a mule, a promise that the government, of course, never made good on, um, and so I, let's get into some of the details of the plan that you put forward uh, in terms of thinking first about what the, the value really is of that 40 acres in a mule today. So in, in other terms, you know, how do you quantify the full debt that you believe is owed to descendants of American slaves in, in 2020?
2: So the the moment of the failure to provide the 40 acres is really uh, is really a critical epic in American history. Um, You know, I think it it shapes the the basis for the immense racial wealth gap that we observe today. So if we start with the moment in the immediate aftermath of the Civil War where the formerly enslaved were promised 40-acre land allotments, the minimum estimate of what that, uh, that amount of land should have constituted would have been about 40 million acres. Uh, What happened initially was about 40,000 of the formerly enslaved individuals were settled on 400,000 acres. Out of the allotment that General Sermon had had specified in Special Orders Number 15, which came closer to 5.3 million acres, stretching from South Carolina to Northern Florida. Uh, But only only 400,000 acres were actually ever settled, and toward the end of 1865, Andrew Johnson, Lincoln's successor after Lincoln was murdered, uh, Andrew Johnson reverses the policy of settlement of the formerly enslaved altogether and restores the land to the former slaveholders. Now at the same time, the Homestead Acts were being activated in the United States, providing large tracts of land to white settlers in the western part of the United States on tracts of land that had been appropriated and seized from the Native American population. In fact, those allotments were 160 acre allotments. And we estimate today that anywhere from 45 million to 90 million Americans are beneficiaries of those allocations because of the intergenerational effects of wealth transfers. So, uh, so this is the starting point Uh, we could use the present value of the 40 million acres as an estimate, as a lower bound estimate of what the magnitude of a reparations bill should be. And in the work that we've done, this comes to approximately $4 to $6 trillion, depending upon which interest rate you use to compound to the present. But... In the work that we do, we also argue that what's really critical is to address the, the gaping racial wealth gap, the black-white wealth differential. And to do that, it would require somewhere in the vicinity of $10 to $12 trillion at the low-end estimate of what would be required for, for uh, erasure of that, of that differential. Wow.
3: And and from that $10 trillion, we're talking about individual payments or payments rather to individuals. Uh, this is not about money being funneled into to programs, but actual checks that uh, individual descendants of American slaves receive, is that right?
2: Yes, so the idea here is that if you're going to eliminate the racial wealth differential, you have to do it by, uh, by, by taking the precise step of providing direct payments to the individuals who are eligible. If you go the indirect route, you will have a dilution of the delivery of the resources to the individuals who, who, who deserve them or merit them. So, for example, if you pursued some sort of neighborhood-based or community-based operation in a world in which gentrification is running rampant, it would be very difficult to ensure that the resources would go to the folks who are supposed to receive them. So, so yes. Uh, one of the central objectives of a reparations program is to provide direct payments to the eligible recipients. Uh, I'm certainly open-minded about the prospect of having other kinds of programmatic initiatives that could be be pursued, for example, providing uh, resources and funds to historically black colleges and universities might be a potential uh, option of what could be done with a reparations fund but for substantive and symbolic reasons, the preponderant use of the funds must be direct payments to eligible recipients. And let me add, when when I talk about payments, I don't necessarily mean cash payments per se. Uh, The objective is to eliminate the racial wealth gap. So what you really want to do is to build assets for black Americans uh, and those assets could be could be built in the form of trust accounts or endowments, not necessarily in the form of outright cash payments. Uh, so, so there there are a number of options in the way in which you could provide individual eligible recipients with the resources from a reparations project.
3: And I mean, I think one of the big questions for a lot of people is sort of where where will we see find this money? Um, are you do you anticipate that it's if- uh, on the weight of tax dollars? Is this something that is, you know, rerouted from other programs? Where where do we get the money?
2: So um, I think that I start with a rejection of the scarcity principle that underlines the view that you have to take money from pot A to produce uh, money for pot B. Uh, I think that our most recent experience with the overnight provision of approximately two and a half trillion dollars to try to cope in some way with the uh, coronavirus crisis uh, indicates that the federal government is not constrained by tax payments to proceed with making new expenditures. So, uh, So from my perspective, the government can simply set up a program of reparations payments and create the resources or create the funds that would, uh, that would uh, address the needed amounts. Uh, you could do it over a period of years to make the annual VIG not quite as high. Uh, you could do it over the course of a decade, for example. Uh, but there's, there's, no, uh, there's no tax-based constraint or revenue-based constraint on the capacity of the federal government to make additional expenditures. The only substantive constraint is the potential for producing high rates of inflation. And so you would necessarily have to design uh, a reparations project or any new expenditure program in such a way that you mitigated the inflation risk. Uh, But that's the only barrier. And so I I don't see us having to cut cut off other programs or avoid other kinds of valuable initiatives for the purposes of financing a reparations project.
3: Now, I want to get into some of the, the criticisms of, of not just your plan, but reparations in general. But first, let's, um, let's take a question from the audience. Um, so Paul Rucker asks, will reparations work if the current system stay in place? Seems like payment for reparations, up uh, payment of reparations, excuse me, would quickly go back to the white community.
2: So there was a sketch on uh, Dave Chappelle's show when it was still on the air in which reparations were given to black Americans and all the money flowed back to white American corporations because of uh uh there there was no infrastructure of black businesses uh that folks could could actually purchase on, uh purchase products from. So so one response to this question is the money wouldn't quickly go back to the white community if a uh, an important aspect of a reparations project was the development of uh, of black businesses or black enterprises. So that's one one answer. The second answer is associated with the point that I made a moment ago, that uh, there are multiple ways in which the payments could be made. And if the payments are made in the form of an endowment or a trust, or, or what we call in more technical language and economics, uh, Less liquid assets I mean, it 's kind of a clumsy term, but that's that 's what we say uh, if if the If the payments are made in that form, you wouldn't have the money flowing out uh, to anyone uh, in 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 an instantaneous fashion. Uh, people would have uh, would have to make more discreet decisions about how to use the funds and when to use the funds, and so you potentially could have uh, resources being devoted by individual Black Americans to infrastructure development within the Black community, where there would be an opportunity to actually purchase uh, purchase goods and services from uh, from other members of the Black community. So, um, so I think you know it's it's a question of whether or not you have uh, a Black business infrastructure. And it's a question of whether or not uh, the payments are made in such a way that they're not uh, outright cash payments that flow immediately out of people's hands.
3: You know, one of the things that's really compelling for, for me in talking with you is that I, I know that you were at one point not uh, supportive of the idea of reparations. And so I'm curious to hear what sort of made you skeptical and what changed your feelings.
2: So around 1989, uh, an economist named Richard America approached me about writing the introduction to a volume that he had uh, assembled where he had requested uh, a group of economists to construct estimates of the magnitude of a reparations program. And at the time I told Richard, uh, well, you know, I think reparations is something that's ethically ethically, uh, sound but I don't think it's ever going to happen. Uh, this is something that's uh, really in the vein of speculative fiction, and it's just not going to occur. So why are we going to invest time in trying to, uh, trying to uh, work on a reparations project or collect essays about how much it would actually cost? And Richard said to me, and, uh, with, with great wisdom, I, I didn't realize the depth of the wisdom at that time, but he said, read the essays, and write whatever you choose to write. Uh, But I want you specifically to write the introduction. So uh, I proceeded to read the essays, and the more that I read, the more that I became convinced that not only was a reparations project for black American descendants of US slavery, something that was vital to do from a moral standpoint, but it was vital to do from a practical standpoint. And that even if the odds were extremely long of actually having a reparations program come into realization, that it was something that I was obligated to pursue. And so it was in the process of working on Richard's book, which was later called uh, The Wealth of Races, that I came to the point where I began to say that I had to do research and I had to do advocacy work in favor of uh, reparations.
3: Well, I mean, let, and let's talk a little bit of, I, I think about some of the criticisms that people do have of reparations. You know, I think first, one of the big ones you hear is if, if this is a way to, to sort of close the wealth gap, um, you know, is it really fair that, you know, defendants of slaves who have earned themselves into the 1% would also be eligible to receive um, these checks? And, and how do you respond to, to those who say that?
2: Um, could you clarify, Whitney, what you mean by 1%? I'm not sure that I understand.
3: Yeah, I mean, so basically just, if you're thinking about the Oprah Winfrey's of the world, the you know uh, descendants of slaves who are you know, millionaires and billionaires, and um, you know, how uh, can you justify payments for those
2: people? So- a reparations project is not an anti-poverty program it's an act of justice restitution that has never been paid before and so there is no criteria associated with the conditions of living eligible recipients that should block them from access now if individuals like an Oprah Winfrey said I'm so wealthy uh, this, this payment really is not of importance to me. I'd rather it go to somebody else. That's their discretion. But they certainly are eligible to receive it. Uh, when reparations payments were made to victims of the Holocaust by the German, uh, German government, uh, there was no inquiry about the economic status of the eligible recipients. When uh, reparations payments were made to Japanese Americans in the United States to compensate to some, to some degree for their unjust incarceration during World War II, no one asked how much is that particular individual earning or how much are they worth before they were, uh, were, uh, were given their $20,000 payment. So, uh, so I think the same is true here. Uh, This is not a matter of how well individual black people are doing today. This is a matter of the collective difference in black wealth and white wealth. And that's what has to be spanned. And any uh, black American who is a descendant of persons who were enslaved in the United States is eligible to receive it. It should be a matter of their discretion as to whether or not they take it. And then for
3: those who also think, you know, this money maybe would be better served if it were funneled into social service, service programs. You know, if you're thinking about um, money that might support failing education systems or think about money that might support police reform and other ways that sort of um, prevent black Americans from attaining and maintaining wealth. Uh, what are your, your feelings about that?
2: So uh, none of those approaches that I've seen, uh, particularly uh, kind of social programs in some grand sense, uh, universal programs of redistribution, Uh, none of the ones that I've ever seen would meet the task of eliminating the black-white wealth differential in the United States. Uh, None of them have the capacity or the wherewithal to erase the black-white differential in wealth. And so uh, they're, they're simply not sufficient. They're not enough. Uh, and and I'm, I'm particularly taken by the emphasis a lot of people want to place on providing resources for education. Uh, and as, as a university professor, of course, I'm fairly passionate about educational attainment. Uh, I'd be a hypocrite if I wasn't. But, uh, but in terms of thinking about the racial wealth gap, educational attainment, doesn't hold much promise at all. And see, here's a notorious statistic that I think is very telling on this score. Uh, Black heads of households with a college degree have two-thirds of the net worth of white heads of households who never finished high school. So you're not going to eliminate the racial wealth gap simply by giving black people more and better education because you're not going to interrupt the intergenerational transmission effects that are associated with moving resources from one generation to the next if you continue to have a community that doesn't have any resources to transfer to subsequent generations.
3: And let's take another question from the the audience. Uh, So Alma asks, I'm concerned about proving eligibility, not because of the challenges, being able to track down genealogy records, but also because of the exclusion of members of the African diaspora who have lived, live in the United States. Can you speak more on this issue?
2: Yes. Uh, So, first of all, uh, there's no question that the types of criteria that I've talked about for eligibility will give genealogists a huge amount of business. Uh, But one thing that we propose in the final chapter of From Here to Equality, which is the chapter where we detail a program of reparations, is that the federal government in the process of establishing uh, the reparations project uh, could provide resources to individuals who are trying to establish their, their legitimate claims for reparations. Uh, resources for the genealogical research. There could be an agency that could be established that would do the genealogical research on behalf of, of individual claimants. And so, uh, I don't think that that's an impossibility. The other issue that's raised by, uh, by, in, in, in the question here is the, uh, is, is are the contours of who would be included and who is excluded from this particular type of reparations project. And yes, Uh, the individuals who are more recent black immigrants to the United States, particularly after the 1960s, which is the the vast majority of recent black immigrants to the United States, um, they would not be eligible for this program. And they would not be eligible because the anchor for this program is the failure to provide the formerly enslaved with the 40 acres, that they merited at the end of the period of enslavement and this failure is what has had long repercussions for living Black American descendants of U.S. slavery. Uh, individuals who are more recent immigrants from other African countries don't share that particular historical historical effect or historical moment. Uh, and I think that that's what defines the unique position of this particular claim. Uh, If folks believe that more recent black immigrants do have some form of reparations claim, then I encourage them to try to develop it. But it's not the same one that's based upon the cumulative effects of slavery, Jim Crow, and ongoing uh, white atrocities in the United States.
3: And, you know, you so you've been doing this work for a long time, and I think uh, as we're running out of time here, I'm just curious about your sentiments um, about how you, you feel in terms of the progress um, that is being made towards this and, and how, how far away or close do you feel we are to um, seeing a plan like yours realized or any sort of restitution uh, realized for descendants of American slaves?
2: So like most economists, I'm horrendous at forecasting. Uh, and so I'm not entirely sure uh, Uh, you know, what's going to evolve. Uh, I will say this, the momentum that exists in the present moment is promising. Um, And I would say that, um, you know, in in the year 2000, uh, when uh, Michael Dawson and Ravana Popov did a major survey, they found that only 4% of white Americans were in favor of reparations for black Americans uh that figure is closer to about 20% now and uh and almost half of all millennials are in favor of reparations so uh so the direction seems to be going in the in the proper way and i think that there is a significant amount of support at minimum for the creation of a commission to study reparations. Uh, The prelude to the Japanese-American reparations was a commission called the Commission on Wartime Relocation and Internment of Civilians. And there should be a parallel commission as a prelude to uh, black American reparations. Uh, And the possibility of doing that is embodied in a piece of legislation called House Resolution 40. Uh, I will say that there are some serious limitations and weaknesses in the existing legislation as currently constructed. And I think that before we go forward with passage of that legislation, which seems to be quite possible, uh, we need to actually revise its content. Uh, But apart from that, I think that that would be a key step in moving in the direction of a uh, comprehensive reparations program for black American descendants of U.S. slavery.
4: So uh, I would love to introduce uh, Brandon Holmes, uh, who we are are really excited to have here moderating in our panel, and also very excited to have our incoming director for the Hudson Valley Regional Office of the New York Civil Liberties Union. Uh, Brandon is a leader in grassroots campaigns to end mass incarceration, driven by the ways he has seen incarceration affect his own family. Most notably, Brandon has experience in organizing and developing formerly incarcerated leaders throughout New York State. He was the organizer who led the passage of the New York City Fair Chance Act, which seeks to eliminate employment discrimination for justice-involved New Yorkers, and he recently managed the Close Rikers campaign, securing a bold commitment through a strategic plan to demolish all 14 of New York City's current jails by the year 2027 and replace them with four smaller, more humane detention facilities, prioritizing access to care and improving the conditions of confinement for incarcerated residents. Previously, Brandon served as an organizer for the New York Civil Liberties Union and is planning his return to the Nightglue as the incoming Hudson Valley Regional Director. Welcome, Brandon. Welcome to all of our panelists. Welcome to all of our attendees. Um, we're really excited to have you. So uh, take it from here, Brandon.
5: Thank you very much. I appreciate it. And welcome, everybody. Good evening. We have a great panel today, so I'm going to get right into introducing everybody, and we want this to be a conversation between the experts in this issue area um, and also be able to give you all something to walk away with, something to know what your next steps can be to take action or to educate yourselves more on the issues surrounding reparations. So first, I want to introduce Jennifer Bellamy, the Senior Legislative Counsel at the ACLU's National Political Advocacy Department. Jennifer joined the ACLU in 2008 and serves as a Senior Legislative Counsel in the organization's NPAD department, where she advocates on a range of racial justice issues, Jennifer has played a leadership role in the passage of the fair sentencing of 2010, which reduced the infamous and discriminatory sentencing disparity between crack and powder cocaine and began to address some of the serious racial disparities plaguing the criminal justice system. Thank you, Jennifer, for that work. Then I want to introduce Trevor Smith. Trevor is also a NICLU alum and is a narrative and cultural strategist who writes and researches on topics such as racial inequity, the wealth gap, and reparations. Trevor is currently the Director of Narrative Change at Liberation Ventures, where he is building the first narrative lab that is dedicated to building narrative power behind reparations. Trevor has previously worked in the program and communication roles at the CERNA Foundation, ACLU, and the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities. Thank you, Trevor, for your amazing work and the legacy you've left around this issue. And next, I want to introduce Congressman Jamal Bowman, who represents New York's 16th district. Congressman Bowman's uh, district includes the Northern Bronx and parts of Westchester County, including his home of Yonkers. He was elected to Congress in 2020 and Jamal Bowman ran on a platform of transformative progressive policies that will no doubt improve the lives of those who have been legislated out of the American dream. Congressman Bowman is dedicated to passing visionary policy that infuses climate justice with economic and racial justice and to highlighting the importance of research and investing in communities of color on the ground. Thank you very much, Congressman Bowman. Um, So with the three panelists, this first question to start our conversation, I want to set the stage for all of you. So if you'll indulge me, please close your eyes. And I want you to envision this. It is the perfect world. And you wake up and you and whoever you trust most in this work are now co-directors of the United States Department of Reparations. I'm going to ask each of you in order to name one single issue or discipline area where you would start to invest in immediate reparations. So first I want to go to Jennifer, then we'll go to Trevor and then Representative Bowman. So Jennifer, one single issue or discipline area that you would invest in immediate reparations.
6: Well thank you so much uh, Brandon for that question and for that introduction. This is a very thoughtful way to begin our discussion. And with this question, um, which is very, um, it's, it's really, it's really sort of a, um, you know, foundational question. I would say, if if I had the power to make that decision, I would invest my um, decision-making power in creating a commission um, because I want all of it, and and I want to be able to address the range of issues and and look at the ways that um, we have been impacted um, by institutional racism and by um, the practices that were enshrined in law in this country over decades. And so, I think in order to fully do this justice, um, I like the commission approach uh, that is outlined in HR 40. And I know we'll have an opportunity to talk about it more lately, more later, because it is holistic because it it does not limit us. And we are able to not only bring the ideas that we have, and I'm sure um, the other panelists will have excellent ideas to share. Um, In addition to any idea that I could think of, there will be others who will have the opportunity to share ideas. And also we'll get to hear from people who are impacted in their communities as well. So it really lays out a very comprehensive process similar to the one that we saw Japanese Americans successfully undertake in their fight for reparations.
5: Trevor, you're up.
7: Thanks for that, Jennifer. And yeah, Brandon, this is a very hard question. It's kind of like asking a parent to pick their favorite child. It's really hard. So I'm going to kind of uh, follow uh, Jennifer's lead. And really, um, I I can't. I can't just pick a single thing because that's the thing about reparations. Um, It can't be looked at as a single-pronged issue because harm was uh, was caused in multiple ways. So at Liberation Ventures, um, we're building out this framework that's based on a variety of concepts from the UN Human Rights, uh, Movement for Black Lives, uh, National African American Reparations Commission, and COBRA, um, and Dr. Darity and Kirsten Mullen's work, um, and thinking about this holistically, and and we're we're calling it a a repair framework. And so it includes redress, which can and should include compensation, but then it also includes reckoning, and we talked about accountability and acknowledgement, and we think those four components are what makes the comprehensive reparations program. So in addition to financial compensation, which I think should come in uh, directly in the form of cash, but could also look like student loan forgiveness or business grants, um, we need a reckoning in this country. I think as uh, we all know, and we all seen this kind of anti-history critical race theory fight, um, we need to also change the curriculum and shift public conversations. Um, we need a real truth and reconciliation process. Which I know uh, Representative Bowman has advocated for, and ultimately we need to change our culture because, as I said, it needs to be a, a constant, um, a constant process uh, to build this culture of repair. Um, and then acknowledgement. You know, I think harm has been caused, as I said, in multiple spaces, and so I think an apology is needed not only at the federal level but also at the late, uh, local, state, and in the private sector. And so I'm sorry I can't answer it directly how you uh, how you asked, but. Um, I hope that kind of gives you a a sense of how reparations should be
8: thought about.
5: Congressman?
8: Okay, I'm not going to cheat. My two fellow panelists, they both cheated. Even though I agree with everything they said, I'm going to try to uh, answer the question. You know, it's interesting. As I was closing my eyes, what came to mind for me was housing. I don't know why, but that came to mind first. And I guess I'm thinking about reversing the impact of redlining on our communities. So I'm thinking about housing and community development and thinking about the security of housing, of adequate housing, the safety of adequate housing and and how adequate housing can provide the space for freedom of thought, the space for creativity, Uh, the space to build the world that we are trying to build for the African-American community. I just thought about housing. Housing came to mind for me, you know, thinking about how, you know, public housing has been neglected. Again, redlining and the New Deal and how that created uh, or contributed to uh, the separate and unequal America that we have, wealth inequality related to housing. Uh, that That's what came to mind for me, but I agree with uh, Jennifer and Trevor, they're absolutely right. Um, you, you, that would be the first thing, but it's not going to be the only thing, because obviously there's so much more uh, to repair based on
5: historical harm. Thank you, thank you, each of you uh, for your perspectives, and definitely pushing back to challenge that it is, it must be comprehensive. Anything we talk about has to be a comprehensive plan. So. That leads us to just talking about how there has been many ways that the U.S. has uh, either attempted or successfully uh, issued reparations in the past, right? Um, And then there's many ways that we can be demanding that the U.S. government do so now, um, whether that's in the form of direct checks to the descendants of enslaved people or if that's uh, housing vouchers and grants, Uh, that would be made available specifically for people who are impacted by the justice system. I want to ask first, Trevor, who should be at the forefront of negotiating what a comprehensive reparations plan should look like? And can you talk a little bit about why those are the communities involved?
7: Yeah, Um, so thanks for that question. I think as with most issues, the people closest to the issue, those directly impacted, specifically when it comes to reparations, because reparations is about addressing past harm done onto communities, specific communities, um, those are the folks that must be leading it. What's important, though, I think, is that it's as inclusive of Black Americans as possible, right? So because racial injustice in this country, um, as it relates to Black people, it's, obviously it's impacted millions of people. So only the federal government has the capital and the convening power to get the various entities needed Um, in a room to craft a comprehensive reparations policy. And so that's exactly what H.R. 40 seeks to do. Um, By creating this commission, it seeks to empower um, whoever might serve on that commission to ensure that the voices of black Americans are represented in this comprehensive policy.
5: Thanks, Trevor. And uh, I want to go to Jennifer next. Jennifer, could you share some examples uh, around reparations or past examples of reparations that we can learn from today?
6: I'm so glad you asked me that question, Brandon. Um, And I just also want to add a little bit, if I can, to Trevor's answer before about um, having people at the table. I think one of the things that is going to be very beneficial from the HR 40 process is providing that opportunity for impacted people to lead the way in the work but also providing an opportunity for impacted voices to be heard. Um, One of the things that we learned from our friends in the Japanese American community that was very healing and therapeutic was just having the opportunity to to tell the truth about what happened to them during the internment of Japanese Americans for which they received reparations from the federal government. A part of that process, in addition to creating a commission, uh, very similar to the commission that the commission in H.R. 40 is modeled after. And just in case folks are not aware of it, H.R. 40 is a bill that is in Congress that would establish a commission um, that would examine the institution of slavery and its legacy and make recommendations for reparations to Congress. And it's modeled after a bill that was um, developed during uh, the Japanese-American fight for reparatory justice, which they ultimately succeeded in receiving reparations for, uh, for the incarceration of Japanese Americans during World War II. And one of the things that we learned from our friends in the Japanese American community was the opportunity to be heard at hearings that were held around the country during this commission process was very therapeutic, just having an opportunity for folks to make their voices heard. So I just wanted to add that when we talk about the comprehensive opportunity that people will have to be a part of this HR 40 process. Um, the other piece that I'll say, which is a, which is a, you know, largely unknown fact is that this country does have a, a history of paying reparations. Um, in 1860, America had about 4 million enslaved people and um, and there were, as a result of it, there were a number of millionaires in, in the United States and and that wealth was directly from the enslavement of others. But what people may not know is that in 1862, before Abraham Lincoln, President Abraham Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation, he paid reparations to enslavers of people. He paid $300 for each enslaved person that was freed. And so the country has paid reparations. You know, people may say, oh, it's too hard. It's impossible. We've never done it before. But if we look in the history of the United States, we have done it. And, and you know, and this is just justice. This is about justice delayed. Doesn't necessarily have to be justice denied. And the total um, that the Lincoln administration paid was about $1 million um, to the people who had enslaved people. And that was just for those folks who were living in D.C., in Um, So I just wanted to flag that, um, you know, fact that might not be um, known to everyone, but I think it is very important in this conversation as we're talking about reparation.
5: Thank you. Yeah, to to know that there's such an old history of the country acknowledging that harm and actively doing something – gives me a little bit of hope to think that HR 40 could be the next iteration of that. This could be something that this generation is able to reflect on and say like, we didn't let that legacy die. So I want to pass to Representative Bowman. Could you talk to us about the status of the HR 40 commission and what can you tell us about maybe advancing or elevating the work that the commission is about to take on?
8: Absolutely. I just want to go back to something Jennifer just said, just to make sure I heard her clearly. Abraham Lincoln, President Lincoln paid reparations to the slave masters who lost their slaves in Washington, D.C. Is that correct? Is that what you're saying?
6: That is correct. That is what I'm saying.
8: Got it. So we paid the slave master for I their didn't even, I didn't even
5: catch that. I have decided.
8: <laughs> yeah. oh my God. For their losses, but we haven't uh, provided recompense to the formerly enslaved and their ascendants. Wow. That's that's powerful. Thank you for sharing that. And just one brief comment on, you know, who's at the table, right? So um, first of all, there have been people who have been researching this issue for several decades. So we definitely want them to be a a part of the conversation. Uh, Obviously, people who have been most impacted by the the legacy of slavery need to be a part of the conversation as well. And Congressional hearings as well as hearings across the country can be a part of that. But with 21st century technology, there's a way to crowdsource and make sure we get as much feedback and input from as many people across the country as possible. So I think that's going to be key just because that large conversation is going to help with the healing process as well, because everyone will have an opportunity to have their voices uh, be heard. And recent research has identified the Uh, the uh, epigenetic intergenerational impact of slavery on uh, African-Americans today. Uh, So we're not just talking about the fact on the jaw. We're talking about how uh, genetically it's passed down through uh, uh, transgenerational epigenetics. So that's recent research. I'm still reading it, still going through it. But it's another data point to show uh, the need for a study, the need for a commission to study the impact as needed. Um, Right now, H.R. 40 uh, is moving through the House of Representatives. So for the last 30 years, uh, it's been introduced, but it's never been uh, marked up in committee and voted out of committee. This is the first year it's ever been voted out of committee. So that's a really, really big deal. It has over 200 co-sponsors, and you need 218 votes for it to pass the House. Uh, today, we had a press conference, and I'm in communication right now with uh, Representative Sheila Jackson Lee, who is uh, the lead uh, sponsor uh, for this bill, and we are working to work with the leadership of the House to bring it to the floor for a vote. Now, what's key here is it's not just about uh, Congresswoman Jackson Lee's voice and leadership or my voice and voice leadership. We need everyone in out in the community that supports H.R. 40 being brought to the 4-4 vote to engage House leadership or, and push them to bring it to the 4-4 vote. That is constant phone calls. That is constant letters. That is constant emails. That is going on social media. That is going on any media that's out there to continue to apply that pressure. We are about to ratchet up the pressure. Hopefully, we'll pass the Build Back Better Act this week, uh, and then push to pass our budget, push the Senate on voting rights. But in terms of the House, the next big fight in the House, it has to be H.R. 40. Immigration reform is already passed the House, sitting in the Senate. Uh, common sense gun reform passed the House, it's in the Senate. Voting rights passed the House, is in the Senate. H.R. 40 is the next big fight, and we need everyone to engage with their local reps, but also leadership, Speaker Pelosi, Leader Hoyer, uh, with Clyburn and, uh, and uh, Chair Jeffries. We need to put a lot of pressure so that it could be brought to the floor for a vote.
5: Thank you. Um, I want to share a little bit about a poll that was taken in 2020. It's shown that 31% of people support the idea of reparations, which is an increase from 19%. Uh, when a poll was taken in 1999. So over 21 years, we saw a 12% increase in support for reparations. However, we still have 63% of Americans saying that they oppose the idea of reparations, and the racial disparities there are very clear, right? With over 8 in 10 Black Americans supporting reparations, And over 75% of white Americans saying they oppose reparations. So Trevor, because you're doing a lot of narrative work and you're preparing for a listening tour around reparations, could you talk a little bit about what you think may contribute to the rise in support for reparations? And what kind of narrative shifts or moments do we need uh, to bring it more to the forefront to make it more popular?
7: Yeah, thank you. And I'm really glad you asked this question, because as you said, it's something that I've been focused on a lot right now. So in terms of the increase of support, I think there's obviously, as you know, Brandon, a lot of behind the the scenes things, you know, organizers on the ground have been pushing this issue forward for years. There's legacy organizations, some of which who who I named at the top, NARC and COBRA, who have been advocating for this issue for years. So there's, you know, advocacy organizing work that's been going on um, for centuries, really. You know, I I first came into this work through research, um, learning about Queen Mother Audley Moore. Um, And so we're really standing on the shoulders of our ancestors. And so, as you know, nothing gets done just by magic. So it's a lot of the organizers. But then there's also some really tangible things. The case for reparations, I think, by Tunahisi Coates, written in The Atlantic a couple years ago, is a piece that brought a lot of folks who were not familiar with the topic at all um, into the subject, right? And so he obviously is just a brilliant writer. And so that's a piece that I still reference today and people who are still new to the topic reference today. And I urge... Um, folks who might not have read it said so just google the case for reparations it's the first thing that'll come up and then more recently the 1619 project right and so for, I, I was trained as a journalist uh, I have a comms background and so those two pieces I think are some of the most um, powerful pieces that have really increased public awareness um, and really reframed how we the story that we tell about America and it's a reframing it from a story of an exceptionalism to one of theft. Um, and so those two pieces I think have really increased support, and so then in terms of the, the polling, um, you know, uh, at LV we're, we're doing some polling and we're having conversations, and we're seeing support increase when you frame uh, reparations um, um, related to kind of more recent wrongdoing. so things like police brutality, um, you know, folks can kind of grap- uh, grasp onto, which I think makes sense. You know, I think non-Black people today can see and even themselves. Um, experience bad interactions with the police. And so our, our polling shows that when you frame reparations within kind of the, the more recent, um, uh, injustices in the criminal justice context, support goes up. And then we're also seeing support go up when you frame it as financial compens- compensation in addition to things like housing and housing grants and education investments. So I say that I say all that to say that, you know, polling is important. We're going to be doing some comms, some more intentional comms work, um, with this polling, but um, I really think and I really focus on the narratives and, and narrative change. And I think about narratives as kind of the averages of our most popular stories, right? And so what are the most popular stories that we've told about race in America? They've all been anti-Black. They're rooted in anti-Blackness. The the first form of popular entertainment in this country, the minstrel shows, um, are rooted in anti-Blackness. And then a lot of those tropes and stereotypes um, persist today. So anti-Blackness is a meta-narrative that we're kind of... Um, grappling with, and then there's kind of sub-narratives underneath that. The racial progress narrative is one that um, often, you know, crops up. Mitch McConnell, when he gets asked, when he got asked about reparations, he said, we don't need things like reparations because we elected a Black president in Barack Obama. And so this idea uh, that we um, are inching closer to this post-racial country, you know, is a falsehood. Um, And then it really makes people overly um, optimistic and overestimate. Um, the state of racial um, and economic inequality, and we also have the meritocracy narrative—that's one we're up against. And then one I think you know I, doesn't get a lot, uh, much attention is this the lost cause narrative. Um, you know the the idea um, around the Confederacy and the stories we tell about the Confederacy. I had the pleasure to see Ta-Nehisi Coates and Nicole Hannah Jones last night in Brooklyn um, for the for the release of her new book, the 1619 Project, and she talked about how we don't view the Confederacy in the same light of how we view Nazis and Nazism. We wouldn't, you know, Germany would never have a monument of of Hitler, um, but we have monuments and schools named after Robert E. Lee, um, even though, you know, they tried to tear this country apart to ensure that the institution of slavery um, would stick around. Um, So these are the narratives I think that we're up against. And we have to be really intentional about creating a strong narrative infrastructure, like those on the right have, as we've seen with this critical race theory fight um uh to really push back on it
5: thank you trevor um and you know that kind of leads me into one thing you said there right that there's this post-racial narrative right that we're beyond this we've elected a black president before and hey he even got a second term right um but in the debate about reparations another thing that comes up with that is people talking about slavery and saying that, you know, slavery is ended, kind of talking about it as it's a thing of the past. But we know, um, thanks to a lot of media and narrative work done around the 13th Amendment, that the 13th Amendment still protects um, the right to treat incarcerated people as slaves. So I want to actually ask uh, both Jennifer and Representative Bowman, if you could respond to this question. Um, in our fight to push for reparations how do we include those who are incarcerated or formerly incarcerated, despite the harm they may have caused or all of the reasons that people will tell us like, reparations are for good black people or reparations are for this group of people, not that group of people. How do we challenge those narratives? Um, and maybe even if you have any experience in having those conversations, tell us, you know, what have you gone through? So we can start with Jennifer.
6: Okay, I'm I'm glad you um, asked that question because you know one of the legacies of slavery is the disproportionate incarceration of African American people. Um, you know, as a society, we have chosen to invest more into incarceration than we've invested in communities and building communities, um, and we've also invested more in um, the types of things that will, that result in over-incarceration and mass incarceration then we've invested in interventions. And, you know, one of the things that you mentioned before is that this idea, you know, that, you know, enslavement of people happened a long ago and, you know, so we shouldn't really focus on it. But I think what that conversation overlooks is the legacy of slavery. We had redlining that was very prevalent for a long time. We had lynching. We had various forms of discrimination and exclusion from employment opportunities, from lending and banking opportunities, you know, from um, opportunities for farmers. I mean, there were so many opportunities that the federal government alone provided that African-American people were categorically excluded from just because of being African-American. But then also, while they were excluded from opportunity, they were disproportionately Um, you know, given this pathway to mass incarceration. um, And frequently, you know, as as we will see if we're looking in um, at the statistics, frequently for very similar um, types of things, but the penalties are harsher and people and the effects are longer lasting. And so the benefit of HR 40 is that the commission will look at all of it. And absolutely, we have to have everyone at the table and hear all of those stories. But I think the benefit of the commission is that would it examine all of these different areas and make recommendations that will address all of the ways um, that the legacy of slavery has impacted um, African-American people in this country.
8: Every descendant or ascendant of slaves uh, will benefit from the study. Uh, for the need uh, for reparations and reparations themselves, every single one. Um, Jennifer is absolutely right. Mass incarceration is a part, sort of a, a, the evolution of the continued oppression of black people in this country. Uh, you know, we, we we escaped the South, the Jim Crow South. We escaped the Ku Klux Klan or attempted to, and we came North and to the Midwest, And we found redlining and a lack of jobs and police uh, that were a part of a system of mass incarceration. This is about repair and this is about healing. And our brothers and sisters and non-binary people who are incarcerated need healing as much as everyone else. So not just a part of the table, at the table and a part of the conversation, but definitely will benefit from. reparations in the study of reparations so absolutely it's 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 this country is it's, it's repairing the harm caused by the country's original sin that didn't end with the ending of slavery um, it, it, slavery Jim Crow the Klan redlining crack cocaine mass incarceration police brutality uh, intergenerational epigenetics. It's all part of it, right? So that's what we're That's what we're healing. And we need all voices and all narratives and all stories and all reality to be a part of that.
5: Thank you. Thanks, both of you. Um, so I want to pause here. We are going to start moving towards our Q&A portion. So if anybody has a question. Uh, you can put that into the chat, um, or there's a Q&A function, if you see down at the bottom of your screens, you can use the Zoom Q&A function. We'll start to pull some questions from there. But first, a uh, closing question for each of our panelists. I want to ask, for people who want to increase their education or begin taking immediate action to support the fight for reparations, what would you recommend? Uh, and let's start with Trevor.
7: So, so when thinking about using your voice, particularly if you're a non-Black person, um, think about where you hold places of power um, and try to advance those conversations, uh, advance conversations around reparations and reparative justice um, in those spaces. Um, in, in, in terms of using your time, you know, I know we're all busy, but you know these orgs that are working on reparations advocacy day to day, the folks on the ground doing the organizing work, um, they're underfunded. And so um, thinking about, what skill sets you might have, I mean, and how it might be beneficial. You know, there's a white ally group um, who I held a fundraiser for last year called the Fund for Reparations Now. And in a similar way to Surge, they convene and organize white people. And so I think if you're a white person interested in getting involved in this issue, I would, um, you know, look them up either on Instagram, they have a Twitter, um, they also have a website, um, and they fall under NARC. Um, and then obviously, use your dollars. I think obviously, the bulk of funding has to come from philanthropy or high net worth individuals. Um, And then again, the government has to pass HR 40 so that we can really see the change that we seek. But um, in order for that to happen, the organizers have to organize, the researchers have to research, the communications people have to do the communications work. And so think about how you could pool your funds with colleagues and move it to places at the local level. There's organizations like the Beloved Community Center, Media 2070, which I know Representative Bowman actually um, has partnered with um, before um, the Truth Telling Project. Um, the, if you're fo- if you're interested in in how young people are av- advocating around this issue, look into the Amendment Project. So there's a host of organizations doing the work um, that need your dollars. Um, and so those are the things I'd say.
5: Great, thank you, uh, Jennifer.
6: Well, I really appreciate appreciate it, uh, Trevor's Very comprehensive list. Um, That was very thorough, and I really, um, you know, just echo his comment. Um, All of his websites and uh, resources that he identified, I think, are particularly helpful um, in becoming educated on the issue. And I will also just lift up that on the ATLU's website, um, there is an action alert um, that people can go to. And when they get to that um, action alert, they can send a letter to their member of Congress and ask their Congress member Uh, to co-sponsor HR 40. Um, And if they're already a co-sponsor, they can ask their um, member of Congress to urge that this be brought to the floor for a vote. So I will lift that up as an additional resource
8: as well.
5: Thank you. And Representative Bowman?
8: Please contact my office, contact my office, call my office, email my office. We're gonna be organizing people around this issue so that we can move Congress leadership, leadership in the house in direction it needs to go. So do everything that Trevor and Jennifer said, absolutely do those things, but also contact my office and we'll help everyone get organized around how we're going to put pressure on leadership and other members in the house to make sure this gets moving because it's, we are so close. We are closer than we have ever been in passing HR 40. And if we pass HR 40 in the house, There have been some whispers that it doesn't even have to pass the Senate, that that will be enough for the president to sign an executive order and form the commission with the House's passage. So it's really key for us to continue to apply pressure in the House uh, to make sure the leadership moves it. And I'm talking leadership. Again, Speaker Pelosi, Leader Hoyer and others. Uh, But contact our office and we'll help you get moving in terms of applying that pressure.
5: Great. Well, thank you all. Um, And folks don't go anywhere. We still have about 15 minutes left to ask them some questions. We do have two questions in the chamber right now. I'm going to start with one. uh, And anybody who feels equipped to answer this, please come off mute and go right ahead. Shouldn't people who cannot demonstrate an enslaved ancestor, but who have suffered from racist discrimination be included in reparations? Does anyone want to take that question?
6: I, I can um, I can uh, respond to that. Um, I think one of the benefits of HR forty is that it establishes a commission that will examine the institution of slavery and its legacy, and then make recommendations to Congress. And so, and instead of uh, trying to address the big issues like the one that you raised at the outset, you know, we are establishing this commission process so that everyone has an opportunity to be heard and at as a part of this process, those types of issues can be looked at and those types of determinations can be discussed and made. And so I think, you know, you're raising exactly the the types of things that we need to be, um, we need to be thinking about. And then we also have a process that is set up um, as we move forward.
5: Thank you. Um, and before our next question, I want to just uh, – flag something in case some folks aren't watching the chat. Some folks from NCOBRA have shared that they've identified five ways that folks still suffer, um, which are nationhood or peoplehood, education, health, wealth, as well as criminal punishment. So if you're looking for a framework to start having these conversations at home, there's another resource that you can look into shared by NCOBRA. Our next question, um, someone asked, Given the importance of HR 20 and its tie to civil rights, uh, why wasn't it a part of the civil rights legislation? Does anyone understand the, the prompt?
8: I, I may have just gotten here. Um, do they mean HR 40 when they say HR 20? I mean, I'm I don't HR
5: Yeah, it does say HR 20. Um, but I believe it may mean HR 40, yes. So why was it not a part of civil rights legislation is the question.
8: Well, it's interesting. When I first got here and started having conversations about H.R. 40, you know, the, the response from leadership and others was, you know, something to the effect of the country isn't ready for it. The country wasn't ready to have the reparations conversation. You know, civil rights is obviously an important conversation. We passed the Civil Rights Act, I believe, in 1965. It's something that, you know, everyone can wrap their minds around. Yes, we all deserve civil rights. We all deserve human rights. But when you start talking about reparations in the country that's still majority, not Black, um, people start thinking that, you know, in terms of the narrative piece, You're taking money or something from them and giving it to Blacks for something that they didn't do, right? They, you know, we didn't own slaves. You know, (laughs) I'm not a part of that, right? So uh, what I was told when I first got here is the country wasn't ready for that, even after George Floyd. So the work that Trevor's doing is so important because... It is about narrative, and it is about storytelling. It is around engaging in conversations because we have to shift paradigms in terms of what we're talking about and what we actually mean, and how it 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 heals the entire country and benefits the entire country. Um, those are two major parts of the narrative um, that we have to move towards and move towards now, not just uh, not not allow it to be kicked down the, the road again, which is going to happen if everybody on this call <laughs> doesn't apply pressure on leadership right now. It will not it, It'll be something that we will not tackle during this Congress.
5: I guess to, to piggyback on that, um, I want to ask uh, any of you who want to jump in, right? One of the biggest arguments against reparations is the cost of implementation. When we have a plan, it's gonna cost money and that makes people upset. But since the COVID-19 pandemic began, we've seen US billionaires increase their wealth by 62% or $1.8 trillion richer. Uh, And this has also allowed wealthier individuals to thrive and just devastated small business owners and working class families and predominantly uh, Black Americans were and continue to be disproportionately affected by the financial burdens of the pandemic. So what would you say to somebody who thinks that providing reparations right now just doesn't make sense or is unrealistic because of the, quote, economy?
6: So, so I would just like to share, you know, uh, I think as most, most folks are aware, um, in June, uh, with unanimous support in the Senate and you know overwhelming support in the House, uh, a bill uh, establishing a Juneteenth National Independence Day was quickly voted out of Congress and it was passed into law, um, signed into law by the President. And that bill, which provided a federal holiday, while it's important, it was it was a very expensive bill. Um, and you know while those types of symbolic measures are important, what we need is repertory justice. We need HR 40. And so if we're just looking at cost, you know, we've already there's already been demonstrated willingness to spend money on a Juneteenth national holiday. Um, but here we're asking, you know, our Congress and our leadership to move beyond the symbolic um, and provide um, repertory justice. And, you know, in the simple form of establishing a commission And so I just want to hold that up as a just recent, um, recent um, demonstration of how we have been willing to spend on this topic, uh, but not gone far enough.
7: What I'd say is, um, you know, in the same year um, that Jennifer was talking about it, when Abraham Lincoln um, gave um, enslavers uh, reparations. That same year, the Homestead Act was um, was signed, and it gave away millions of acres for free, um, most of which went to white people. Um, so, in fact, 1.5 million white people, both American-born and immigrant, profited from the Homestead Act. And I was I was doing research earlier today, and um, what floored me is that um, it's the uh, it's in the year 2000, so the turn of the millennium. There was about 46 million people, um, which was a quarter of the U.S. population at the time, who um, were descendants of the original Homestead Act recipient. And so, so many white people can trace their economic stability and wealth to one policy, to one kind of large land wealth transfer. Um, and so when, when it comes to, when it came to white people, we had no issue doing it. And then I think the other thing I would say is that, um, you know, our spending, you know, really uh, signals what our values are. You know, immediately as we were um, coming out of Afghanistan, we we saw um, you know figures that came out um, about how much we spent on on a obviously needless war, um, and I think I saw a figure that um, we spent 5.8 trillion on all conflicts stemming from September 11, um, 2001, um, up until today. And so, 5.8 trillion is about is almost half of what a reparations package would cost, according to um, Dr. Darity and other uh, academics. Um, who who think that uh, a reparations package that would close the racial wealth gap would be about 12 to 13 trillion, and so um, we find the money for other things, and we find the money for occupation, and we find the money for killing people, and so um, I think we could also find the money for things like this.
8: Yeah, we we find the money for war, uh, we find the money for white people, not just uh, today but historically. Uh, but when it comes to uh, African-Americans, we, we, we never find the money. Uh, the federal government is different than state and, and local governments. So state and local governments have to balance budgets, right? Like, like at a kitchen table, the way we all do with a checkbook, we have to balance budgets. We collect X amount of taxes, invest in, in uh, public goods, pay salaries, pay pensions, and all of those things. The federal government is different. Uh, we are a sovereign nation. We have a fiat currency we, Our money is not connected to 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 gold any longer um, so we can we can do something called or engage in something called deficit spending or investing in the economy at any level we choose. We just did it. Uh, uh, during the COVID pandemic to re-stimulate the economy, economy to rescue the economy. We did it uh, in 2008 during the housing crisis when we bailed out big banks uh, in the form of hundreds of billions, if not trillions of dollars. Uh, Trump, in his first year president, he gave $5 trillion tax breaks to the wealthiest among us. Um, again, we, we invest in what we prioritize. It's just historically we haven't prioritized black folk We haven't prioritized repairing the harm of slavery and its legacy. Um, And, and, you know, when you invest in historically marginalized people and communities, people then contribute more to the economy and it actually makes the economy stronger, uh, which is something that's not, not talked about enough. Um, and it'll increase GDP. And what also needs to happen is you tax the wealthy and large corporations equitably, and that helps control inflation and keeps it balanced. What we have now is we don't tax the wealthy and corporations equitably, so things remain out of balance because wealth remains concentrated in their hands. If you give everybody else wealth and don't adjust the tax code, then we have, we'll have out of control inflation. Uh, so that that's a, it's a BS argument
5: if someone put in the chat. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I think uh, we will have time for one more question or so. This, this is going to be a mix of a couple of different questions we're getting, but I think you've all spoken directly to like, how do we protect the narrative and the process of identifying uh, what reparations should look like, what a comprehensive reparations package should look like. That's including folks who have researched this for decades. That's including people who are most impacted and people you know, who are impacted in different areas, whether it be housing, whether it be mass incarceration. Um, but Are there any, I guess the question here um, that I'd want to toss out to kind of capture what people are putting in chat is are there any like pitfalls or threats to co-opting this movement and this narrative that you all can foresee and kind of give us some like tools on how we can challenge that and like stay firm in our belief that directly impacted communities must be at the table talking about reparations and that we cannot allow this to be, you know, a thing that is, we're beyond that. We're beyond race. This is just going to cause more harm. How do we show that or, you know, tell that story? I hope that made sense.
7: Yeah, I think, you know, what I'd say is what what I'm a little bit afraid of in terms of the co-opt, uh, co-optation is, uh, you know, sort of what we heard from Mitch McConnell earlier when he got asked, you know, last year um, uh, around the uprisings. Um, You know, I don't think, I don't want the government to, uh, the federal government for Congress to think that an increase in housing vouchers or increase in SNAP or things that we're already doing, you know, our reparations. You know, uh, 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 Representative Bowman talks about Medicare for All. He talks about federal jobs guarantee. Those things are needed in addition to reparations. And so what I don't want is folks, you know, saying, well, we're going to do UBI or we're going to do baby bonds or we're going to do a federal jobs guarantee. That's your reparations. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about both. We're talking about federal job guarantee and reparations. And so that's what I'm scared of. But when we have folks like Representative Bowman there, I'm confident that that's not going to happen. But it is a slight scare of mine. But um, I think we're heading in the right direction.
8: Yeah, I would just add, I I appreciate the kind words, brother. But I'm not enough. And what I mean by that is we need more people like me here, number one, and we have a good, nice group that I think many of you know, know very well, which is great. Uh, in addition to that, we need outside pressure as well, because I've watched, I've watched special interest groups wield power in Congress like you wouldn't believe. Um, fossil fuel uh, industry, pharmaceutical companies, and many other lobbies, Fraternal Order of Police, uh, they'll they 'll call leadership and tell leadership to have a bill voted on on the same day, and all of a sudden they 'll be on our calendar and we 'll vote on it same day they'll they 'll call leadership and ask leadership to pull a bill bill will get pulled same day so i 've watched that kind of power be wielded and and Trevor's absolutely right this 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 conversation can be degraded into something like housing vouchers which Again, are great and, and and very helpful and absolutely needed, but that's one aspect of what we're talking about, um, and that's why we got to continue to push very aggressively the envelope of the commission because you know everybody on this call already knows what the commission is going to find, uh, but we want America <laughs> to to see and we want to be very transparent so everyone so it's, it's undeniable uh, that the need is there and what that need is is ultimately going to be.
6: Yeah, I think, I think the thing that um, you know, I'm concerned about, and, and I guess I'm more optimistic than concerned because I think in order to do advocacy, you have to be a bit of an optimist and, and, a, and a worker. And I think the thing that I, I would just like for us to continue to do is to keep working. I think anytime you're close um, to the finish line, um, especially if you've been um, you know, advocating for something for a long time, um, it can be tempting to say, Well, you know, we are not quite there yet, so let's just forget it. And that would just be such a tragedy. Um, we' are so close. I mean, we've made so much progress. We've made more progress in the, in the last Congress than we had in the, you know previous history of the bill. Um, in the hundred and fourteenth Congress, I think there were two co-sponsors. Um, as Congressman Bowman said, in this Congress, we have, Around 200 co-sponsors and adding daily. So this is absolutely the time to push. This is absolutely the time to continue to put that pressure where we need it on a political process, uh, because that's what's needed in order to get things uh, done on Capitol Hill. We we don't you know um, you know get close to the finish line and then walk away you know from what we have, but we keep pushing until we get the win that we want. And I think that's absolutely what we need here. And so, um, so that's the thing that, you know, I want to see is that because we are so close, I think we are, we need to be more energized and more strategic and keep pushing until we get over the finish line.
5: Great. And I'm so glad that all three of you felt energized to respond to that question, because that will be the end of this amazing panel. Uh, I want to thank Jennifer Bellamy, Trevor Smith, and Representative Bowman for your time and expertise tonight, um, and all the resources that you were able to share with folks. And I also want to thank Lucia for pulling this event together, um, and I look forward to working with you all uh, when I join the New York Civil Liberties Union in January. Everyone have a good evening.
8: Peace and love, everyone. you having us.
6: Everyone.
9: San Francisco, how are you? Woo! I am so fired up to be here. I have been an absolute fan and sister to the city of San Francisco under the leadership of Dr. Cheryl Davis and the entire team um since I met Dr. Davis. I guess it's been um over a year, a couple years now really. And I just want to first of all, I love the theme of starting with gratitude. Um, Start with gratitude for just even being in this space with you, being able to be in this space with you, and um, being partners with such a rich city in uh, the work of racial redress, black empowerment, black liberation, and so on. So happy to be here. My name is Robin Ruth Simmons. I am the founder and executive director of First Repair. While a city councilwoman in Evanston, I led our city in passing uh, the nation's first funded reparations initiative that is funded with tax revenue. And so I'm actually going to start, yes, thank you. very, very proud of our city, but also committed to doing so much more, because as important as that step is, relative to the harm, uh, it's insufficient, so the work continues. Um, so I wanted to open a little bit differently than I usually do with a video Um, Since we have a short amount of time, I wanted to open with this two-minute trailer that shows snippets of the, uh, the milestones and also the challenges of doing reparations work and how complex it is and also how historic it is. So I'm going to start with that video, and then we're going to get into the work. So let me make sure I have this right.
0: It should be cash payment.
1: I think what they're offering us is an insult. How do you determine who's supposed to get it?
2: Yeah, I I don't think reparations for something that happened 150 years ago is a good idea.
10: H.R. 40 is, uh, we're pushing very hard. There's been a lot of debate and discussion about the bill. This is a proposal for reparations
0: for the institution of slavery. The institution of slavery has never gone away. Convict leasing, the oppression of voting, poll taxes and racist GI bills. HR 40 is in fact the response of the United States of America long
10: overdue. I get this call from a dear friend. He said, man, you know, we got a bad sister in Evanston, and she's pushing the reparations question strong.
0: Redress to the black community for the nation.
10: And so it was Alderman Simmons. You have to become the visible face and the driving force of the Evanston Reformation initiative.
9: Some mornings I wake up and I feel like, wow, I'm a part of history. This is special. And then it's intimidating at the same time, because what if you don't get it right,
5: the greatest hurdle is the political will to make it happen in Alderman Simmons made it happen gathering a lot of evidence specifically implicating actions of the city this program as it is is incomplete I, I don't know why they would be
0: given more status than any other group of people people have been extremely
9: nasty to me
0: you don't give them money and then tell them what they can do with it you cannot pay my grandfather back he's dead give us what we're due. i don't think it's gonna go too far or anywhere I'm still not prepared to join an insurrection. I just want you to understand who we are. We in Everson are leading the way to heal a nation. We don't want a piece of freedom. We want the
9: whole package, and that's reparations. Yeah. Oh, that's Perfect. Right. I'm gonna get if out
11: there. If you're a there, professional eh? woman whose career is not with? thriving.
9: Perfect. So you can see the work is complicated, right? And our harm is so deep and heavy. um, It's hard to feel satisfied. um, And and how will we be satisfied? But today I'm going to talk to, um, I'm going to speak from the perspective of being a stakeholder. Who here is a a, a San Francisco stakeholder? Stakeholder. Stakeholder. You You are black? You are from this city, you want reparations, you want repair, you want empowerment, you want liberation, you are standing on that. So doesn't mean you have any particular title anywhere or any institution. Now, some of you may also have a title. Are there institutional leaders here as well? So there's some overlap, which is great. So that's what you and I have in common. And so I came to this work as a Evanston stakeholder, the historically black community uh, in Evanston, but I was an elected official at the time. And I came to be an elected official because I was a stakeholder, and I saw that we were not being included. We were not enjoying the same livability as uh, everybody else in town. We did not have access to anything that we needed that was being celebrated, and that led me into um, pursuing elected office. Did that and saw that all of these conditions we have are policy conditions and that we can change them with legislation. And as Home Rule Municipalities, we have the authority to do so. And so I want to just start with that as context of where I come to you as a practitioner, um, not as an academic and there's other types of leaders in the space, attorneys and uh, but I'm coming to you um, as your peer, as a stakeholder and a practitioner just like you are. Additionally, um, my work is now informed by um, many touches with foundations, organizations, now dozens of them that I've been able to talk to on their history of harm and also their goals for repair. Um, in addition to foundations and other institutions, many colleges and universities just returning last week from speaking in the UK at the University of Cambridge, as they just uh, their uh, acknowledgement of their history of slavery as well. In addition to that, uh, my work now has reached uh, global communities, Um, also having been to Accra, Ghana, uh, going to Cape Town to learn more about truth and reconciliation, going to Guinea-Bissau, West Africa after doing DNA and genealogy work and finding out that my foremother was kidnapped guinea bissau and so going and returning there last year so that i could connect with my ancestral home and then also recently going to vatican city rome where we have been able to bring a case a presentment for reparations um, to the vatican for their atrocities against black people and really initiating in some way the transatlantic slave trade and so what i've learned in this experience is how connected all of it is, but how important the hyper-local work that we're doing is impacting global repair. And so although we are concerned about our neighborhoods, in my case, I was concerned about a, a like a four-block radius where all black folks were forced to live at one point in time. And now the work is not only impacting other cities to be inspired, but it's now impacting other nations to be inspired, having met, Uh, city council leaders in the UK last week that are replicating the things that we're doing here in the United States. And then this is just a map that shows some of the cities in which I've been able to serve at First Repair. So quickly, there are so many ways that we think about reparations, and usually we hear people discuss a check or some sort of form of um, compensation. But we look at a very comprehensive approach to reparations. The process of repairing, healing, and restoring of people who were injured due to their group identity in violation of their fundamental human rights by a government, corporation, institution, or individual. And that definition is in COBRA's de- definition, which is the um, oldest 35-year-old organization that has been fighting for reparations. We're also looking at all forms of reparations. And so although there is a very active... Uh, group for cash payments. When we go into every city, and when I say we, I'm speaking about my colleagues at Redress Network. Every city we go in, the prescription for reparations from black community is broad. Black folks want full repair. Black folks want a remedy, a portfolio of remedies that include cash but also include access to education and health and housing and business and wellness and so on. And so we embrace uh, the forms of reparations that are in this slide, and I would be happy to share this slide with anyone that's interested. And then additionally, we're looking at all institutions. So although the city of San Francisco is responsible to repair its harms in the black community, so are the universities in town, the healthcare care systems, the public school systems, foundations, businesses, possibly some indiv- independent families in town have harmed black community here in San Francisco. I don't know the full history, but I'm telling you the story is the same in every city that we have been in. And so we are holding institutions accountable in the space that we're in. And so in my case, I was an elected official. I knew that I had to do whatever I could do to the fullest authority of my role as a city councilwoman in a home rule municipality to bring repair. And so cities across the United States now are looking at local reparations. And before, we were all really fighting for H.R. 40. It was introduced in 1989, has been uh, ceremonially reintroduced every Congress since 1989. Historically, it passed out of committee for the first time last year. But still, we have no H.R. 40 commission, and so we're doing what we can within our purview. The city of Evanston is looking at our zoning laws and our housing uh, discriminations that were anti-black, responsible for the current segregation that we have today. Other cities like Amherst, Massachusetts, is looking at their racial covenants. Tulsa, Oklahoma, of course, and very appropriately, are looking to repair the the uh, massacre, the race massacre of 1921. I'm sorry, i visited there and I get emotional every time I think about what happened there. So in Evanston, this is a city map of our historically redline community. Sure, it's the same here. Although this has been outlawed with fair housing when that was passed in 1968, today this red map, I live in the center of it, is where black community still lives. It's also where black community uh, does not have a neighborhood school. The only city, the only neighborhood in all of Evanston that doesn't have a neighborhood school. The only neighborhood that doesn't have access to healthy food, a food desert. Uh, the only neighborhood with air quality issues because of busing, because we don't have a school. We have uh, less community amenities, less um, environmental assets, deteriorating built environment, and so on and so on um, in evanston and so these are some of the things that brought me to uh, call the question of reparations in our city in evanston we have an income gap of fifty thousand dollars between black and white evanston here is a list of recommendations that were given from black evanstonians in our work in 2019 when we began our community work to hear from the community on what forms of reparations do we want to see And you can see that it's a long list. This is a very limited list, but I want to say that it's been the same in every city. And so I won't go through this whole timeline because this is really a two-hour presentation and I have 10 minutes. But um, our process for reparations, although the introduction was made in 2019, I really look at 2002 as when we began our commitment to reparations. Judge Lionel Jean-Baptiste, he was then an alderman in Evanston, or a councilman in Evanston. He returned, like many others, from the World Conference Against Racism in Durban, and many local leaders began introducing resolutions for reparations. Now, at this point, it was just to support H.R. 40. It didn't have accountability to the city. It didn't have a budget, but it was a commitment to repair. Um, in addition, there were slavery disclosure laws that were passed um, as well. But through a couple years of work, community process, town hall meetings, stakeholder meetings, uh, committee meetings, city council meetings, we passed Resolution 126R19. That established our reparations committee. It committed our first $10 million of cannabis sales tax to reparations, and then it prioritized our goals for reparations based on the feedback we had from the community, which was housing, economic development, and educational initiatives. So more about process, and I'll say that at this point we're dispersing reparations. So we've went through a community process, identify eligibility, identify um, our first recipients, and have begun dispersing reparations. Now this is the part that's really, really important. Stakeholders, legal professionals, government, uh, historians, financial institutions, allies, funding sources, resource, researchers, philanthropists, Um, Everyone in community is responsible to the reparations process, not just black folks in us identifying the harm and prescribing the remedy, but our allies in doing the work, supporting it, funding it, holding themselves accountable, educating their own communities. And so this map you probably saw it yesterday uh, when the Redress Network presented. But I love to share it because it shows how so many cities, including San Francisco, are beginning to take their steps towards reparations. And here it shows um, how reparations is being categorized. And so lastly, I just want to say that what we're doing, San Francisco, Evanston, Detroit, Michigan, Um, you know, Amherst, Massachusetts, is having global reach. And so although we're here right now in San Francisco, communities across this world, including Europe and West Africa, which have been only in the last 60 days, know about the work that's happening here and holding their own governments accountable and being inspired about how we might be repaired as a global black community. And so my message really is that uh, if we synchronize our local efforts, if we support one another, if we add on to um best practices from city to city, um, we will get to global repair for black folks. And so um with that, I just want to introduce my colleagues. I don't know, raise your hand which is coming first and I'll introduce you. Actually,
11: you want to open up questions for you first.
9: Oh, okay.
11: Because everybody us
9: yesterday.
4: Oh <laughs> but I think maybe yeah. Okay.
9: Okay, so I just kind of breezed through that to make sure we had space for everyone, and I would be happy to answer any questions. Yes. I just had a
4: question about the term stakeholder, and is that a fixed definition or is it in any
9: way subjective? I consider it fixed, and you know my colleagues will respond to it, but it is one that is, has been without debate in the movement for reparations. Um, stakeholders being those that are directly harmed or harmed through lineage. Um, so although I wasn't in, in Evanston during our period of harm, which is 1919 to 1969 is when we had anti-black laws, I'm a stakeholder because I'm a direct descendant of six generations of my family that lived in Evanston. And so it's not a term that there's a lot of things we debate in the movement. That's not been one of them.
4: I, I want to be clear
6: about what? I'm a homeowner in Oakland,
4: uh-huh. but I feel like I'm a stakeholder in San Francisco. because everything they do to San Francisco is then going to Oakland. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, it's just rolling right down the hill. Mm-hmm. And you just get over here first to support <laughs> over here. Yeah. But so that, that was more of like, yeah, just like an intro. But yeah. Not about how you define it, but the in the room when you said raise the hand if you're a stakeholder.
9: Mm-hmm. So I wanted to raise my hand Everybody black is a stakeholder. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, you may not share a zip code as you know my brother here, but you're fighting for the same cause, and you've had the same harm, so you may not you may not be eligible for reparations here in San Francisco, but you are eligible for reparations so. yes, you should, yes, you should, yes.
4: Of
10: course. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The work that you My question uh, to you is, how do we develop a framework for institutions that may want to take an internal look on how they can identify harm and identify reparations for harm they done? What if there's a, a, a business or a corporation that says, you know what, you know, we know this is more focused on institutions of government, but what model? That's right. They become part of that arm too because mm-hmm. they take it for marketing and then want to just send some volunteers to go pick some dirt. Where, mm-hmm. you know, put oh, yeah, we Black Lives Matter, see?
4: You know,
9: mm-hmm. so Black Lives Matter, but all right, what's your reparations? Mm-hmm. That's, what That's right. Love the question and you're spot on. And the framework really starts with the case for reparations. And so each institution, organization, whoever it is, government has to have Um, a harm report some communities call it a harm report but they have to do their own history uncomfortable history and so at cambridge there was just a debate that i think is worth exploring more that institutions don't do their own harm report (laughs) for obvious reasons right um but what's been happening now is you have to start with a case specific to that institution so you can't uh satisfy the goals of HR 40, which are slavery reparations and the transatlantic slave trade, but you can do what's happened in San Francisco. And so once you establish that, whether the institution does it or someone else, in our case, we had a local historian, Dino Robinson, who's been archiving black history for about 25 years. And so that accelerated our process in getting our report. From the report, we uncovered that there were zoning and housing laws that were anti-black And some cases were so extreme that black family homes were physically picked up and moved to a um, less valuable part of town because they didn't want us to have access to our lakefront um, and the value of that. And so once we had that, we were able to identify a harm and then narrowly tailor remedies in direct correlation to that harm. And so that's how we came up with housing as a first priority but we're still working to uncover more and unfortunately we know there's not going to be any shortage of harms. A community historian, Mm -hmm. yeah. So my first request went to our clerk's office and I got a very surface kind of general no specificity that allowed me to take it to a redress network and do something, but the historian gave us the real.
11: Can you hear me? Okay. Basically, the coalition is a coalition of uh, black-led individuals and or organizations that are working on reparations or redress at the local level, and then alliances who came in, and and so maybe those are institutions or organizations, and then allies, so non-black POC or white institutions, And one of the most interesting things that came out of that was actually the Virginia Women League, uh, Virginia League of Women Voters. And so I'm going to just raise this case up because I think it's really interesting. So the first thing they did is they examined their own history of discrimination and harm. And they wrote a really comprehensive report on the role that the Virginia League of Women Voters played in continuing oppression, plunder, economic genocide, right? And they developed this report. And then they educated themselves on reparations. So they would come to the coalition meetings and they would hear about the efforts that were happening around the the Commonwealth of Virginia and talk to communities that were leading redress at the local level. And now they're in the process of developing reparations, right? So they took a really hard look at themselves. It was like we have done a lot of harm and not only have we acknowledged that but we've now put it into publication that we are responsible and we have accountability and then educate themselves on reparations and specifically are responding to the black-led efforts so that the reparations are being led by the black-led organizations in the ways in which they'll input either money or resources or whatever they have. So I think that for an institution is is similar to what's happened at the city, but also a way that institutions can take a real role in this space.
9: I want to add something to that is what's important. You could probably keep that because um, is that I'm glad Linda got to the point where she said they were listening to the black community as they were prescribing remedy, because had they decided on their harm and prescribed their remedy, and what that would have been a problem, right? So you want to make sure that the community is engaged at the point of, um, really I think at the point of uncovering the harm, but definitely at the point of prescribing remedy. In the orange shirt, yes.
1: Oscar James, mm-hmm. I have two things I want to say. One, New York, New York and San Francisco Stock Exchange is a, a problem that has stopped black folks from benefiting economically. But in San Francisco, for an example, a lot of San Francisco was redlined.
9: Mm-hmm.
1: And the only two places that we could live is Baby Hunters Point, and also the Western Edition. Western Addition uh, and the Barbary Close mm-hmm. were the two basic places that black folks lived mm-hmm. uh, back in the back in the 1800s and what have you. A lot of people think we came here in the 40s and what have you. We've been, we've been here since the Spanish-American with Alexander Leerstorff, who was black in, in this city. Mm-hmm. But my whole thing is this. When Willie Mays first came here to San Francisco, he tried to buy a house up in Forest Hills, mm-hmm. and he they denied him buying a home up in Forest Hills. He had to stay with Mary Shelley at that particular time. Mm-hmm. In 54, 55, when they were building Westlake with government monies, okay, my mother tried to move out because there was a lot of black people moving into Hunters Point. My mother was one way and my father was another way. She didn't want to live with a whole bunch of black folks, so she wanted to move in, in Westlake. We went to Westlake. They told her there that they didn't allow black folks out there then. That was mm-hmm. another red line. Not, not until 1955, 56, they allowed black folks to move into Lakeview, View. There was no blacks. There was a, a, a thing out there where they were denied. Now, all this is in black and white, mm-hmm. where, where, where they can go and tell you what you can and cannot do. A lot of it is being changed now, but we still have places in San Francisco that black folks and third world people cannot live. Mm-hmm. That's, so that's all I want to say.
7: Thank you. Mm
2: -hmm.
7: Hello, my name is Hatim, and uh, my question
2: is about the, in in a world where we do get reparations, how do we ensure that that's not it, that we're not forgotten, and the fact that how I feel like Native Americans are forgotten after they got reparations, um, and how like people uh, would like to say that racism was over when Obama got...